Hello, friends. Hello again, my friends, and welcome back to the Improv and Magic Podcast. I'm L.D. Madeira, and as always, I'm very happy that you're back here. As you know, this is the podcast where I get to talk to fellow improv actors and magicians who I really admire. And today's guest is certainly no exception. My guest today is Will Luera. Will is a comedic actor, presenter, writer, trainer, and director with a varied set of tools that add so many layers to his performances. He is currently the director of improvisation at Florida Studio Theater. He is the director of Big Bang Improv, and he serves as the artistic director emeritus of Improv Boston. His professional skills also include corporate training, workplace mediation, IT generalist, personal trainer, and wedding officiant. Will has also been seen at numerous improv festivals across the country and around the world, including the Phoenix Improv Festival, Curious Comedy Theater Love Fest, Twin City Improv Festival, Countdown Improv Festival, Miami Improv Festival, and Finland International Improv Festival. And believe me, that's only a partial list of the many festivals he's done. I've had quite a few opportunities to meet this guy. You can tell that he's someone who loves to have fun and help everybody else have fun too. He's kind, he's warm-hearted, he's an absolute pleasure to be around. This was a great opportunity for me to learn more about him. And now, you will too. So here now is my friend, Will Luera. Friends, I'm here with one of the hardest working guys in improv that I know. He's amazing. He's Mr. Will Luera. How you doing, Will? Hey, very good. Thank you so much. Thank you for that wonderful intro. You really are one of the hardest working people that I've met. I mean, you're in one show and you're in the other show and you're in this festival and that festival. How do you manage to keep yourself so busy and how do you manage to just keep going all the time? <laughs> uh, you know, I think I'm very lucky, like many of us, to get to do something that we love. Uh, you know, that's truly like the fuel behind it. Like uh, uh, every event that I have planned or that is coming up is something that I'm very passionate about. And I think that's where all the fuel comes from. Uh, and I, whenever I, if I have an opportunity to help or assist or be a part of something, like I really do feel that that is. Uh, a it's a privilege to be in that position. And so if I can help you in some way, be a part of your festival, guest in your show, run a workshop, I I'm going to say yes. Uh, you know, I, of course I have like, you know, five other calendars to have to match it up against, <laughs> but right. if I could squeeze it in, I will. Well, you know, most of us know about Will Luera, the improviser, but I don't think a lot of people know about Will Luera, the personal trainer. <laughs> <laughs> no, not a lot of people do. Yeah. <laughs> well, they do now. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you. Yeah, it is uh, something that I'm very passionate about. And the only way that I was able to squeeze that into my day is that it happens while everybody else is sleeping. I, I go to the gym at, at five in the morning, which means I have to wake up somewhere between four and four thirty to get ready. Oh, for Jesus. That. Uh, I go to the gym at five and then uh, 
I, and then I do, uh, that's when I train, but then I run other classes as well on, 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 on other days. And, wow. Yeah. What is that experience like? Uh, I've never actually talked to someone who's been like a personal trainer. What is that experience like? Because you're also like, I see your post on Instagram and you're posting all of these five K's and all these, these runs and, and walks that you do. So what's that experience like to be so involved in that aspect? You know, I, um, a while ago I discovered that this, uh, that the type of training that I do is my meditative state. And there was a while ago, 20, 25 years ago where improv was my meditative state. Like I would, it was my way to escape from the routine of everything else and go into this place where I was in the moment and it was fun. And then I could step away from it and then go back to my life. Uh, but now improv is my life. Like improv is the way that I pay bills. Uh, it's the way that uh, it's, it, it's my admin work. You know, I have to do budgets. All the things that people do at work is what I have to do for improv now. So I found myself then looking for a new way to achieve a meditative state. Uh, and that ended up becoming... Uh, training and it took me a while to find it, but I found it. And I have to say, I have to say, LD, that training and specifically the type of training I do in CrossFit has ended up bleeding into the way I run improv as well. Uh, that it it's affected my classes and and the other way around, the way that I run my training, my physical training has been inspired by the way that I do improv. So it, it, it's just real. It's become this really weird and fun synchronicity in my life. That's really interesting to me. What are the similarities that you find between teaching improv and the personal training? So one of the things that uh, uh, is that we try to make it accessible to everybody. And that is at least the way that I teach improv. I want to find a way for, for everyone to find their joy in improv, whether it's I'm working with teens that might be on the spectrum on one day or advanced age students that are trying to work through physical physical limitations on another day or it's aspiring comedians and actors right and so one thing that i've i've uh, uh in, in fitness and in physical fitness uh i have to deal with a lot of different clients as well and i need to make sure that they all are able and this is where it really aligns with improv for me I need to make sure that they're all in the same class together, all getting something out of it. And, and not only that, really cheering each other on. So mm -hmm. in the type of training that I do at CrossFit, a big part of it is you're working on your own personal development, but you're also there cheering everybody else on. You're rooting for them. You want them to finish the workout as well. And I try to, it's the same spirit in my improv classes, whether you are an aspiring comedian or actor, or you're just dropping in because you, somebody gave you a, a gift certificate, right? Or you're somebody who you've been, you're, you've been agoraphobic and can't get, have not been able to get out of the house, but here you are. I want all of those people to come together, have fun and root each other on. Hmm. Amazing. You ever have any difficult clients when you do your personal training, just out of curiosity? Yeah, I mean, and, and this has been, a, a, again, a, a, a thing that's taught me in other aspects as well, is that you'll sometimes see somebody that tries to do too much or tries to go outside of what they might be capable of. And I know what that feels like. I know when you come in and, and we've all had that. We've had that improv student as well. They're in that level one improv class. and They're like, oh, I, I could do more than this. Why, oh, am, I yes. doing, why am I doing these these? Uh, quick scenes and why am I working on these fundamentals when I could be doing so much more? 
right? And then suddenly, you know, they, they're having trouble on the on just the basics of a scene. I have the same thing with physical fitness. It's like, you know, they try to lift too much or they try to run too fast or jump too high. Uh, and they still haven't worked out those basic fundamentals, right? We want to, we want to, I want to make sure that you could squat properly. I want to make sure that you're locking out your core and that you're breathing properly, you know, just as much as in an improv scene, I want to make sure that you're listening to what the other person is saying. I want to make sure that you're retaining the information and building upon what the other person is saying, uh, in, in a way that's helping everybody out. Hmm. That's awesome. That's awesome. I really commend you for that because I know personal training is not always the easiest job in the world. <laughs> uh, it, it's not, but it, you know, it um, it's made a huge difference in my life uh, physically. I've in the last uh, decade now that ever since I really started to for, uh, make it a regular part of my life, uh, it, it's helped me physically, and I am happy to pass it on to others. Wonderful. Let's get to the beginning with you, Will. Where did you grow up and what was growing up like for you? Uh, I grew up on the south side of Chicago, uh, and, and more specifically, like the near south side. There's a neighborhood uh, called Pilsen, uh, which was a uh, and still is a very uh, Mexican-American neighborhood. Uh, and uh, so that, that's where I grew up up until the age of 18 or so. Uh, and even though I grew up in Chicago, I always reflect on the fact that I grew up in Chicago, but I, I had no idea what improv was. I kind of, uh, and it became, a, it ended up becoming a big part of my mission later in my career. The fact that like, you know, you, you could grow up close to improv and not even know what it is. And it, it drove a lot of my outreach work later in life of really kind of getting improv into every neighborhood you could possibly get it into. Because uh, I grew up five miles from Second City and never even heard from it. Hmm. I heard of it. And so, uh uh, but yeah, that, that's where I grew up. And uh, I grew up in a, in a family that had, and I, in my opinion, a very healthy sense of humor. Uh, we would, uh, you know, in a lot of neighborhoods, in a lot of uh, families that maybe grew up uh, lower middle class and in rough neighborhoods, sometimes the only way to diffuse tension and to diffuse uh, whatever conflict was going on was through humor. Uh, and uh, I definitely had that kind of family that would address conflict, address tension through humor. You know, it's so funny. You're not the first person I've heard that from. Mm. Um, I've heard a lot of people here on this podcast even who have said that humor was their way of dealing with some of the bad stuff or some of the rough situations. Mm. Would you say that that's been kind of a common thing with you growing up? It has. Uh, and it's really made me appreciate how like really uh, effective comedy really lives in the uh, in that tension, right? And the, and the ability to to ease the, ease the tension of, of certain moments. And uh, so, yes, I, it's definitely influenced me growing up. And to this day, like, you know, it's uh, humor becomes a very, uh, whenever there, there's tense moments, I do find myself being the person who brings levity to the room. Uh, and, and that levity comes in the form of humor usually. Mm. Do you remember the first time that you applied humor and you got that laugh and you got that rush and everything felt like the world was okay for that one brief moment? Mm. Uh, you know, I remember in high school uh, a, a, a few times where I, so I, as, as you know, like uh, even though here we are, we fit the box of this podcast equally I'm a lot shorter than you are in real life. And, <laughs> uh, and so uh, when I that was something that, that was a, a source of tension when I was growing up, 
right? Of just like people like always sort of poking fun of at that. And then eventually I started to not turn it into a point of te- like me fighting back or or uh, reacting in a, in a very aggressive way as I might have when I was a, a young, young kid. Eventually I just started to riff off of it. So if people would call me short, right, then I would sort of embrace it and, uh, you know, I would, I, I remember making like uh, jokes about the Smurfs and like, uh, and, and, and I remember like talking about, um, you know, mushrooms and the Smurfs and like Gargamel, a lot of Smurf references were made, uh, and, and, and to the point where like for eighth graders and for seventh and for middle schoolers, it became a very, uh, it was very effective. And, uh, and then I started to see like, okay instead of getting sad or angry or, or wanting to punch somebody, I could, I could make everybody like me just by making fun of the other person, by turning the same thing they're throwing at me, just reflecting it back at them through humor. Uh, and now suddenly I've brought levity to the room. I'm suddenly more liked than I was before. Uh, and and I, and I started to feel a sense of confidence. So, I've heard that too also that basically if you get yourself first, then it kind of lessens the blow a whole lot. I, and I've, uh, you know, I've started to do stand up recently and that's become a huge uh, part of, uh, of that world as well. In that in improv, a lot of the audience members know who I am, which is great. It's in the stand up world. It's very new to me. So not a lot of people know who I am. So in order to, to, to work into that, I will, before they start saying anything, I'll immediately go into something self-deprecating or self, uh, just some self-observations, right? And it's a, it, for me anyways, that, that sort of humor is a great way to just sort of take ownership of it. I'm like, you know, before you start doing anything, I'm going to already own it. And then I'm going to build off of that. Hmm. Gotcha. I, I refer to that as the Conan O'Brien technique. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's good. Yeah, yeah, because that's all he does. He self-deprecates himself. Yeah, yeah, and it's great. I mean, it, it, and you've got once you once you control that, and I have found this in in various parts of uh, of various dialogues through in in comedy. Once you control that, you you have you have control of the uh, of the comedic conversation. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I hope you appreciate that I just compared you to Conan O'Brien. Oh, thank you so much. I do appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to your late night talk show coming yeah, soon. You'll be, you'll be a guest. <laughs> <laughs> At what age did you become interested in performing? A very young, I, uh, I this is not very young in high school. I was, I, I started to get interested in performing, but it was theater was such a um, removed thing for me. I, I didn't know how to get into it. Uh, I saw people doing it. I knew people in my high school did it. I just didn't know where to begin. Uh, I eventually did a musical because uh, they needed everybody. It was a huge musical. So I did that my senior year. Uh, but then in college, uh, when it was time again to audition, had no idea how to do it. Like I, I, In fact, I had so such little idea that I missed all the auditions. And I'll never forget walking down to the theater department and seeing that I missed all the auditions and then walking back up to my dorm and then that's where I saw the sign that changed my life. It literally changed the direction of my life. It was just on a light pole. It was a lo- it was a sign that said auditions tonight, uh, and it pointed to the dorm that was right to my left. It said auditions tonight from like seven to ten p.m. No experience necessary. No monologues necessary. Right, just come on in. And little did I know that it was an improv audition. And again, had no idea what improv was. 
I auditioned, I nailed the audition and then that, that started it. And that was, uh, that was about uh, 30 years ago. Wow. Yeah. What was it about that audition that really made you think this is something that I should get into? The freedom of, uh, that I, that I had in that moment, because all they had was a character description, right? And they were like, uh, here, are, here are three characters or they had a bunch of characters. They said, pick three characters. Uh, and so already a sense of, uh, a sense of freedom because most of the time, and I've come to learn this, I learned this later, right? When you're auditioning for a role, they've already got you pegged. They, they know who you want you to read for. You're reading for this person, bam, bam, bam. I came in and they said, read for any of these characters. And, and it included, there was like a sheriff character. There was like a bandit and there was like a, the saloon owner or something. I think are the ones that I picked. Right. And I, so that's number one, the freedom to just pick who I wanted. And then number two is to then get, then give whatever interpretation of the character that I wanted. And, th- and that's what I got to do. And I think that to this day is one of those things about improv that I like is that you are free to, to make whatever interpretation of the material, of the content, the material, the inspiration, whatever it is that you want it to be. And guess what? I now, am, I, I now have to honor that and respect. If I'm going to join you on stage, right, I'm going to honor and respect that, that choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was definitely a great idea because we just heard a ding. <laughs> <laughs> it was confirmed, Yes. Ding, yes. good idea, Will. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a good idea. Ding. <laughs> but, you know, I, I love what you're saying because I, I 100% agree with you. And I think that's what's kept me in improv because I tried the whole, you know, actor thing uh, in the beginning. Uh, right. That was kind of like what my focus was. I got a bachelor's degree in theater and all that. Right. And no matter how good you are at auditions, there's still sort of that pigeonholing because directors are looking for specific looks, specific types. And in improv, all of that just goes away. And I love that freedom. And I think a lot of people who get into improv enjoy this too, the freedom to be whoever, and you can never be wrong. Yeah. Another great idea. Another great idea. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm trying to forget how to turn these off. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, and, and that's what I, I absolutely agree. Like, yeah, the, the the freedom. I had a friend uh, who taught the concept of uh, of uh, of uh, freedom, power, and responsibility. Uh, and I for, I forget where she borrowed it from, but yes, that that freedom in improv, that first, that the freedom of that first choice for it to be whatever you want. You know, I, I was a uh, uh, I didn't talk about this yet, but I was a uh, a physics major, and there was uh, were you really? Yes, and so they that. I was learning physics while I was learning improv. So they both kind of fused in my brain at the same exact time. Right. And then the way, the way that that ended up fusing was that uh, in physics, like you look at the, the idea of the big bang, right. And when the universe started and how there was nothing until there was something, there was nothing until there was something. And for me, like that, again, that idea of freedom of anything, a freedom of possibility goes back to like, uh, and, and for me, an improv scene, there was nothing, there is nothing until there is something. One of my main improv troops, it's called Big Bang, and that's done for a reason, right? I, I, I choose Big Bang because, uh, and, and our motto is from, from nothing, everything. Uh, so kind of playing along the same ideas of freedom of choice at the top of the scene. Man, that that is so beautiful. Now I understand why it's called Big Bang Improv. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, it goes back to me being a physics major. Wow. Yeah. You know, if you had to think back in your life, if you had to think about what 
trajectory you had planned for yourself. What did you see yourself becoming when you were when you were younger? I wanted to be. I even wrote a letter to myself my freshman year in college. I wanted to uh, go to grad school at MIT. Uh, I wanted to follow a career in in physics and optics, uh, and eventually that changed over to like uh, to quantum theory and quantum physics. Uh, and that's what I, that's what I thought I wanted. Uh, and you know, I, I'm still very much interested in the sciences. I'm, I'm still something that I love when my kids come home with science homework. I love it. I'm like, yes, let's get into this. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, uh, but then, uh, then improv put a dent in that plan and it wasn't a bad one. It was a good dent, but it was, uh, it, it definitely changed the direction of what, where I was going. Hmm. Other than what we talked about earlier, have you found ways to connect the uh, the physics knowledge to your improv knowledge? So uh, it, uh, a lot of my early curriculum uh, reflects, like I already talked about my show, Big Bang, but a lot of my understanding of how to edit and how, so a lot, uh, yeah, how to edit the show, the first few shows I put together when I was a, a director, a lot of that comes right out of the way that I understood the universe the way I understood the world through through physics like the Mm. the idea of like overlapping worlds overlapping characters overlapping energies how something in the past could have an effect on something in the future right uh and then uh, and and they meet somewhere in the middle like these were all things that we were talking about in class in the 90s right and so and, and it was all being fused in my brain at the same time that I was doing improv and so it affected the way that the, all the curriculums I built uh, over time, the shows that I've done. I have a one-man show called The Mysteries of the Universe Explained. It definitely affected the way that I became, uh, the way I directed and taught improv for, for many years. What was the name of that group in, uh, in college that you got into out of curiosity? Sure. They were called, and it's not a very glamorous name, uh, they were called the CCE, uh, the Committee for Creative Enactments. Uh, and we were kind of like the secondary improv team. And I say secondary because the primary improv team was called My Mother's Fleabag. And I just I just happened to be a freshman at uh, Boston College when Amy Poehler was a senior. So oh, no way. Uh, I later got to like uh, Amy, po- uh, Amy Poehler and I like crossed paths a little bit closer afterwards. We were both like working professionals. But there was a, mo- a moment, a day, and I still remember the day that I auditioned for Amy she was a senior. I was a freshman. I didn't get in, but that was like my my first brush with the eventual great Amy Poehler. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could definitely put that on your resume. I think. Yeah. <laughs> the the other the other one was a uh, uh, later on. I mean, we still kind of uh, we had that that connect that BC connection, and I hired Amy because I was already artistic director of Improv Boston. Uh, I hired Amy to come down to teach a, a workshop at, at Improv Boston. You know, I reached out to her. She was in New York. Uh, and she agreed to do it and we paid her, uh, $200, a round trip bus ticket and a Thai dinner. So this was way before Amy was, was famous. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Before Amy was Amy. Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) When you were in that group in college, do you remember your first improv show? And do you remember having that one moment where you did something and it was really special and you had that aha moment, like I definitely made the right choice. The first show that we did, so it was a uh, partially scripted, partially improvised show, and it was highly audience immersive. And to this day, I find audience immersive work to be some of my favorite form of theater. 
Like the, when you could have a show that's happening within an audience and around an audience, I just find that very, very satisfying on both sides, whether as a performer or as an audience member. And so we were doing an, uh, an, a murder mystery, but uh, it was, again, very immersive. It was in the Old West. Uh, and so I would be walking through the audience and then doing a scene and then walking back through the audience and doing another scene. And then I just remember there, uh, there was a, these moments where we purposefully engaged with the audience, where we had to engage with the audience and talk to them. And I just remember this sense of like, when the audience would completely buy into my character, right? When I could draw them into my world and I and and, and bring them in, in with me and have fun with them in this world that I've, this bubble of a reality that I've just created. And that's when I remember like being like, wow, this is, this is really special. Like the, the, the fact that, that I could create this world and bring people into it. Right. And, and again, that continues to permeate the way that I teach and I direct. I always want, I want my actors to, to be able to create a world that is so clear on all levels, right. That it, that it, it can't help, but just drag everything around them into it. You see, even when I talk, I sound like I'm doing like physics metaphors. I'm like, it sounds yeah. like I'm talking about black holes and stuff, but yeah, but that's what I want is like, I want the scene to be so powerful that it draws everybody in. Mm, that is amazing. That's yeah. so amazing. So after college, what did you do? Uh, the first thing I did was uh, went to, uh, I took a class uh, with a woman named Marjorie Byrne and in, in uh, the Boston area. And after a couple of classes, she then told me to go audition for Improv Boston and I did. And then I got in. Wonderful. And what was that experience like in Improv Boston? It was great. I mean, I still attribute uh, my, uh, there's a, a lot of things I attribute my career to, but I was at Improv Boston the longest. Uh, I was our artistic director for 12 years. I was there for uh, for a total of 17 years. I mean, it, it was just a, a great place. Like, to see it grow from a tiny place to what it became and to be a big part of that, like to be the artistic director of it for so long, uh, you know, I, I will always have uh, fond memories of, of Improv Boston. Hmm. Were there things that you learned during your time in Improv Boston that you didn't learn before in the college group that really made improv a lot more real for you? Uh, the uh, yeah, what <laughs> the metaphor that I might have for this is um, I remember walking by a jazz club on the same strip that Improv Boston was at. And, and, and I hope, I hope, I hope you could follow me on this. Uh, I was walking by this jazz club and in it was an acapella group and they were an acapella group and they sounded great. Uh, but the jazz club was empty. Hmm. And I say that because I remember in college and acapella groups would have the halls filled like 300, 400 people would just go watch these acapella groups and have so much fun. But here we are, not on campus, at a jazz club in downtown Cambridge, Massachusetts, and no one's coming to see this acapella group. And I bring that up because it made me realize that improv in college is not the same as improv in the real world. And right. I needed to make that adjustment. And I, I remember like understanding like, okay, I need to be more professional in my presentation because I'll never forget showing up for my first show in jeans and a t-shirt. Right. And I remember my cast members being like, what are you wearing? No, you cannot be in the show tonight. There was, an, I mean, I've never felt like that. I've never been turned away from the show. I was supposed to be in the show that night. 
right? And and I wasn't in it. Uh, and so that's one of the first things, understanding that there is a level of professionalism. You've got to step up in the way you present yourself. You've got to step up in what you bring to the stage. One of the first investments I made, I, if I was in my other room, I would show you one of the first books I bought uh, as an improviser. And it was a cultural dictionary, right? Because now what I understood is that it wasn't just about making references about college life and the campus and you know Cleveland Circle right outside of Boston right outside of Boston College I needed to know the world and I needed to know not only my world but the possible world of all my potential audience members and I bought this book because I was just like I need to know I need to know more geography I need to know more music I need to know about art I need to know about everything if I'm going to access all of these different people because now I was dealing with a much more diverse audience you know, I love so much that you're you're bringing that up because you and I are definitely kindred spirits in that regard. The whole mm-hmm. need to conduct yourself as a professional and mm-hmm. the times that I've seen you, you definitely do that very, very well. I've seen a lot of improvisers at various festivals and, you know, they're performing in jeans and they're performing in shorts and they're performing in flip flops. And I can't help but think to myself, Why? Why does it drive you crazy as much as it drives me crazy? <laughs> uh, it do, it does drive me. Uh, it, I, I, it does drive me crazy. Uh, I I want at least uh, a level of of preparation or at least coordination, right? Uh, you know, if uh, if I see a group just put on that extra little effort of like, okay, all right, they're all like, color, there's a color palette coordination. Right. Maybe they all weren't able to like wear the same outfits, but I could see an effort for coordination. I could see that this person, uh, you know, they're tucking their shirt in. Right. Like just a simple little little things like that, because especially when you're dealing and this is, again, what I learned from my early years in that transition from college professional life. If somebody is paying money. Right. uh, If if somebody is, is making time and effort to come see you. Uh, that's that's the least you can do uh, for them is to is to also put that time and effort. Uh, and, then top, and then on top of that, then you know making sure that the product you put out is is professional. I, I with my teams, I put in a lot of time on hosting. Like I want hosting the because that is such an important thing. Is like how do you how do you set the context, right? Like I I remember learning about how much thought goes into the frame of a painting like of a picture at a museum, like it's not like they just pick whatever frame that fits and they put the painting in that frame and then put it up and there you go, right? It's like, there's so much thought that goes into the frame, into the paint that goes behind the frame, into the lighting that hits the painting, right? There's so much thought that goes into all of that before you even see the painting. And so for me, the same thing in theater, it's like, let's really take care of the entire product and not just what's what's going up on stage. Yeah, because that frame it's it's an extension of the painting. You're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, I I'm I'm always a firm believer that the show doesn't start when the lights go down and the music goes up. For me, mm-hmm. the show begins the moment the audience walks into your venue. Yep. That's when the show begins cuz who are they being greeted by? Are they being professional and friendly? Um, what are they hearing? What are they seeing? What are they smelling? You know, when they sit down on their chair, how do the how do those chairs look? How does everything look? Because all of that, even how good your website is, 
all of that stuff is an extension of the show and all of that has to come together. So I, I definitely agree with you on that, man. Yeah. You're, and you're going back to like that. I think what I learned in my early days in that immersive theater, uh, in that immersive improv experience is that we really, I mean, I know we were only a college group, but like we really needed to make sure that people bought in to, in this case is to buy into the reality but here we're talking about a larger thing of buying into the experience, right? And that's why, like, I really respect uh, the thought that goes into places like like Disney, like a Disney World experience. Like, you know, it's not it's not the it's not the most perfect place, but the thought that goes into what you are experiencing everywhere, right? Like the whole idea of like, there's I forget what the math is, but it's like no, there's not trash cans more than fifty feet away from one another. Mm-hmm. There's like certain things. It's like everything is so uh well thought out uh, another organization that i really respect i don't uh, i don't know if you've heard of or have been able to see the savannah bananas right so they uh, they're a comedic baseball team and they have it it is a science for that team like you arrive at the ballpark you as soon as you step out of your car you're already in it and it is the people that are greeting you before you even see the field you're already getting hyped up uh because people are just operating at a level of efficiency and professionalism. Hmm. How long were you in improv Boston? Uh, 17 years total. Oh, wow. So are are you still with them? I'm I'm, uh, listed as artistic director emeritus, which means that, you know, I am, you know, if they need advice, if they uh, need extra eyes on something, uh, then, you know, I'm here for them. The last time I was actively involved was 2017, 18. Uh, but since then, it's been, a, you know, more in the backseat. And so you eventually became, as you mentioned, uh, artistic director. And mm-hmm. so when you became artistic director of Improv Boston, what were some of the things that you were trying to do for the show as artistic director? Mm. So I was uh, going back to like a lot of the the, thing, the things that we've been uh, uh, finding connections on. At that age, uh, Cirque du Soleil was really big for me. Like I remember just seeing, really being, really admiring Cirque du Soleil and, and Blue Man Group and this idea of just fully immersive shows. So uh, one, the very first thing I wanted to do was like uh, raise production value. All right, because that, that, that uh, so that, that was number one. Number two is I wanted to expand the artistic offerings. Uh, when I came on board, it was mostly short form. It was all short form. It was a short form show and theater sports and that's it. And so, and in Boston, there was zero long form. And so I, that was my goal is like, how do I get long form into Boston? Right. Uh, and, and then how do we expand on that? And it took a while. Uh, and people just, it was a hard shift. This was, early, this was late nineties. Uh, and uh, what I was doing back then is, uh, I was basically, uh, the way I would put it back then was that I was candy coating the long form. So we were doing improvised sitcoms, improvised action adventure movies, improvised musicals, uh, long form musicals. We were doing all of these things that for the audience, they didn't realize that they were, we were training them to, do, to, to watch long form. Uh, but then eventually they got the hang of it. Then eventually we were able to release the more uh, friendly contexts and then go into more like montages and herald work and stuff like that. And by then the audience had caught on and you go to, you go to improv, I mean, you go to Boston now uh, that you'll see a lot more long form uh, than, than you would have seen, you know, a couple of decades ago. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny. It definitely feels like in the beginning, most groups were nothing but short form. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, we definitely see this shift. And now it's become more nothing but long form. Was it difficult to kind of make that shift for everybody in the cast to go into long form? You know, we had a lot of people that were hungry for it. Uh, We had, I mean, we were busting our butts on the short form. We loved it. Uh, But I think like everybody... I think everybody almost says the same thing is that they were craving something artistically, right? Mm-hmm. Like they needed to be released. We go back to that idea that we discussed earlier of freedom. It's like, we want that artistic freedom uh, that, that, uh, that, lo- that we felt that long form could give us. Right. Uh, but it's funny. Like once you get into the long form, you'll learn a certain form. And then eventually that becomes too restrictive and you want to go on to the next thing, which eventually for me led to what we uh, at Improv Boston called free form, uh, but yeah, we, um, we, I had most, a lot of my players were just itching to, to move past uh short form into, into long form. Which do you find more satisfaction with short form or long form? Uh, I'm going to go back to uh, the idea of fitness uh, for this one. Uh, okay. It, uh, and, and, you know, it's funny that like a uh, physical fitness made me appreciate the difference between uh short form and long form because uh, there are certain movements that I like in fitness. Uh, you know, we, we have some workouts that are just seven minutes long, some that are like three minutes long, and then we have others that are 20, 30, 35 minutes long. And they're both, uh, they're, they're both like equally as exerting on me, even though they're, they're two different lengths. And, and I, that's how I, I, I'm starting to appreciate like short form versus long form. I feel sometimes that short, uh, that short form is working a lot of the same muscles, but at a much more compressed and accelerated rate. Scenes are getting are, are, are punching faster. They're heightening faster. Characters are larger than life, right? Uh, and you, you've got to hit those beats just a lot faster. Long form, it's a slower burn. You could take your time, maybe slightly larger ensemble, etc. So I've really, as I'm definitely probably like the same arc as everybody else. I started with short form, wanted to move away from it. Right. Uh, but now I've really come to appreciate what a lot of those games do. Uh, and when I look at them that way, when I look at like, OK, these games, they're not just games, but they're really working specific improv muscles in a fun way. Then, you know, that it's really made me gain an appreciation for them. Mm, amazing. Amazing. Um, when did you start teaching improv? This was in 1998, around there. And it was almost out of desperation. Uh we were um, we had these concepts that we were playing with in long form before we even knew what exactly we were handling at the time. We we were uh, we were just learning from. Like, it's so funny. Like we had people passing through Boston from Chicago and New York that were just downloading this information to us. So we didn't really know what it was that we were getting. We were getting glimpses of, right? And this was pre-internet as well. Uh, I mean, no, it, it wasn't pre-internet, but it was definitely pre-like all including World Wide Web, right? So it was hard to get information, but the stuff that we were getting, we were piecing together. And I've always been very curriculum-minded. Uh, and so I started to put together curriculums and then was in the – infancy of passing that information on to others. And what experience has that been like for you to teach improv? That has to be a rewarding experience for you. It, yeah, it has. And I, it, it, 
one of the things that, uh, and I'm, I'm sure you might feel like this as well from, from teaching, is that it reinforces what you know. Like it really makes you fully uh, better understand what it is that you already know or you think you know. Right. And it's got it, it's gotten to the point where like it's helped me ground myself and be more confident in like, oh, yeah, the way that I see this, I, I get it. I know why I think like this now and I truly believe in it. And there's definitely been other things where I've had to question. I'm like, ah, OK, maybe that's not maybe this wasn't the right or best way to do it. And, uh, and I've definitely have, have had to scratch things off my curriculums that don't either didn't uh, uh, didn't age well or just weren't effective in teaching. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I definitely believe that as a teacher, we also learn from our students as much as they learn from us. Oh, yeah. And that's why, like, I just, you know, I, I, right before I, I got on uh, this with you, I had a class and I still, even though it's been almost 25 years that I've been teaching, I still print out my curriculums on paper because I'm going to be making notes. I'm going to be, I'm still correcting my curriculums. I, I'm still mm-hmm. moving things around. I'm still learning things that they say. Right. And I, and I want to make sure to capture all that. So what was it that brought you to Sarasota? So we would, um, we were, we were coming down, uh, Improv Boston was coming down to Sarasota, to the Sarasota Improv Festival uh, since the beginning, since 2009. And uh, that was the first time I made it down here. And I was coming down here. It was so, we had so much fun. And the festival back then was a fifth of the size that it is now. I mean, it was only one stage. And it was only a few teams, but it was still the same sort of spirit and energy that you all feel now is what I was feeling back then. And I was like, wow, this is great. I want to come do it again. And it came back in 2010, 11, 12, slowly started to see this thing grow, 13, 14. So we're already like five years in. And then at that point is when I became aware of the fact that they were going to, uh, they were going to expand the improv program here. And it was just around that time that I was also starting to kind of look for the next thing. And so the timing really worked out and I, uh, uh, I applied for the job and um, then that's what brought me down here. That was almost nine years ago. Was it difficult to make that adjustment from being in Boston to being in Florida? Yes and no. Like we were already looking to move, but we weren't looking as far as Florida. We were looking in New England. Uh, so that part was easy. We were already kind of itchy to move. Uh, leaving some of the things I was doing in Boston behind well, was tough. Uh, I was a professor at, a uni- at, at Boston College, the school that I went to, uh, leaving behind Improv Boston. I had good relations with our competing company, Improv Asylum. So like, I felt like I had a good hold on the scene, like my, like I, I had not a hold on it, but my, my feet in a lot, in a lot of different places. I had a lot of opportunities. It was hard to give all that up, but I also felt like this was such a, uh, after the five festivals I had been to, I'm like, this is such a unique opportunity. I, I definitely want to, want to take advantage of it. Have you ever been able to fully adjust from cold weather to constant hot weather? Yeah. You know, I, I, I tell people, I'm like, it happened a lot faster than I thought. Uh, I remember people being like, your your blood's going to thin out, blah, 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 blah. And I'll never forget the first, because we moved here in November 2014. And then I think it was January, like the first 55 degree day. And I felt like I was going to freeze. 
And I just wrote <laughs> it like, Will, what, what? <laughs> like, it's 55 degrees. Like, like you're, you're coming in from Boston and Chicago. How does this feel so cold? And it felt so, it felt really cold. Uh, so that was, uh, that surprised me uh, that, that, that I never knew 55 degrees could feel so cold. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's still, it's still uh, getting used to all the, the, the year round heat is, is not easy, but I, I am thankful to live in a place where we can be outside every day of the year. It's great, isn't it? it, it it's amazing. Like that, being able to do that is, is awesome. Yeah. Until it starts raining. Until it starts raining. Correct. Yeah. yeah we, we just had a big rainstorm uh, earlier today here. Mm. Oh, yeah, we did too. Yeah, we had we had one a uh, couple of hours ago. Yeah. And of course, like every year we got like five or six hurricanes coming our way. So that's another thing to get accustomed to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the last, uh, you know, this last season, uh, the last one that just hit a few weeks ago was 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 interesting. But, you know, we're becoming it's becoming old hat. We, we we know what to do. We know we know what where, where we need to get our supplies. I mean, the first one that had that hit us when we were here. Wow, we were. My wife was crying. Like we just really going on. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember. Uh, you will have never known this, but I was living in Miami when we got hit by Hurricane Andrew back in 1992, mm. and that was the big one. That was the Category Five, probably the strongest that. Florida has ever been hit with and mm-hmm. you know that just totally leveled us all and I feel like after Hurricane Andrew we kind of developed this attitude of well we made it through Andrew we can make it through anything now <laughs> wow I, I always I'm, I'm always scared for you for you all in Miami because you're right there you're like the you're like the gatekeeper <laughs> yeah we are <laughs> But you know what's interesting? Like lately, there's this weird thing that's been happening where like a hurricane will be headed straight towards us. Then because of the wind, it curves and just misses us, but yeah. hits everybody else for some reason. <laughs> so I don't know if there's a lot of people praying to St. Theria and causing voodoo to do that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we say the same thing here because we... We've had a few now that have like come been coming straight to us, and then suddenly they they nudge away from us. So it's, yeah, same thing, a lot of lot of praying or something going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Something, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so when you made it to Sarasota, is that what got you into the doors of Florida Studio Theater? Yeah, I mean that was uh, they they were the first ones that got me here. They they were they were the ones that hired me, and uh, and and I've been here since then. Yeah. Well, you know, it really feels like you've put in so much into Florida Studio Theater. I mean, every time I go there, I see the level of effort and commitment that you put into everything. And, you know, your improv program and everything else, it just gets better and better. You could see the growth. What has that been like for you to make this improv program at FST really grow and develop to what it is now? You know, I learned a lot from uh, my time in Boston uh, and there is so much, there's, it's really important to listen to your audience, not only in a show, but listen to your community as well. And I, when I first moved here, the first six months that I was here, I did not change anything. I did not change a class. I did not change the shows. I just sat back and listened and I'm like, okay, what, what are these people like? What do they want? 
And even like, what don't they know that they want yet? Just based on what I can see, what, what, what do I think would fit well? Then after six months, I started to nudge and add and tinker. Uh, and now we have a community that is a lot bigger than it was when I, when I first got here. Uh, and same thing with the community in Boston. We were able to grow that many times over. Uh, and that's all, that's all I want to do is, is listen to the community and then figure out what it needs and what it wants and then give, give it that little bit. I had different plans when I first moved here. I was like, oh, we're going to do this. We're going to do this other thing because this is what worked in Boston, right? And then I quickly realized, wait, wait, Will, that this is not Boston. This is, yeah, that worked in Boston. That's what got us to where we were. But the same doesn't apply here. You got to come up with a whole new plan. And my um, one of my uh, favorite things to have happened is the evolution of my curriculum. Because I, uh, I, I brought the same curriculum I had in Boston down here, and that's what, what we started with. But then once you're dealing with a different demographic and a different group of people, it forces you to reevaluate your curriculum. And then you start to look at, okay, where is my curriculum not accessible? Where is it uh, actually restrictive for people with cognitive or physical limitations and it made me reevaluate everything and then and then my it helped my curriculum evolve and again that just came from like listening to the community are there any differences that you notice between the improv that you were doing at improv boston and the improv that you do now here in sarasota hmm. i think that uh so that one of the biggest things is and, and this is specifically for florida studio theater is that we have a very uh, theater going, theater knowledgeable, theater intelligent audience. They know mm -hmm. theater, they like good theater. And if your improv is too sloppy, if it's not, I'm not saying that it needs to be theatrical, uh, but this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Like if there wasn't effort put into the presentation of it, these audiences notice. And if you do improv that is too self-referential, right, or too vague, right, where you're not really taking care of the audience, they will notice and they will make you, I'm not, that sounds harsh, I was going to say they make you pay for it, but they, you will notice it, that they, they're not into the show. And so that was one of the biggest things, is that when I was in Boston, you could get away with the self-referential, you could get away uh, with the ironic, sort of very lax scene, right, and uh, maybe a scene, a, a format that really depended more on the moves than the actual, the moves and technique in the actual story. Um, but that doesn't fly as much here. Your scenes have to be strong. Stories have to be clear, right? And the, and the acting has to be good. And, uh, and, and that's what they respond to. Let me ask you this. How much focus do you put on trying to make the audience laugh? That's a, that's a great question. I, um, I don't know if I put as much effort on, trying to make them laugh as much as uh, I really try to figure out what it's such a, I'm like, it sounds like I'm just turning your words around, but I try to figure out what makes them laugh. Like, I don't want, it's not like I, I I'm trying to, I'm not going to come out of the show throwing jokes and, and, you know, try to warm you up that way, but I'm going to try to get to know you as the host and during the getting to know, during my hosting, I'm trying to fill you out to see where exactly your sense of humor is that night. And when I say your, I'm talking about the collective audience, 
because uh, I really do. I, I yes, it's made out of individuals, but every audience, every night, definitely feels to me like an organism. And it's gonna. It, I need to figure out what where where your buttons are that night. And so during my hosting, I'm gonna recognize like, oh, okay, you're a little bit quieter. Okay, you're you're more attentive than other audiences, or you liked that one thing that has was a little maybe like innuendo that I threw in, or you liked the musical stuff or whatever. I'm just going to pick up on that so that then I know what to go back to. Uh, and then eventually that'll tell me a little bit more. Uh, that'll tell me a little bit more about what makes you laugh. But I, it, I rarely come out, uh, come out of the gate trying to make you laugh. Do you see yourself more as an improviser or as an actor? Uh, I see myself more as an actor who improvises. I, I definitely feel like improv is a form of acting. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, there's acting with a acting with a script, acting with your body, right? Acting with just your voice. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different flavors to it. Uh, I am an, an actor who who creates uh, these moments on the spot uh, using inspir- using inspiration that is given to me from a variety of different, uh, through a variety of different ways. Hmm. Well, we also get to see how much work you put into the Sarasota Improv Festival. Mm -hmm. And I know that festivals are a really big deal, especially when you're producing it and there's a lot that goes into it. Um, How did the Sarasota Improv Festival get started and what has that experience been like for you to produce this festival year after year? It started in in 2009 uh, with Rebecca Hopkins. And when I first came here, uh, my goal was to grow it out. And I told, uh, I told our managing director, I told her, uh, you know, I, I want to add a variety of different acts. I want us to go a little bit, uh, you know, to try to go into some other acts that I think would be very good. I also want us to go international because uh, that's before I got here, we did not go international. So I told her, I think there's a lot of acts out there that, that our audiences would, would appreciate. And so uh, that was my goal. And, and also embrace more of the Florida scene uh, was other, another big goal of mine. The times that I've been there, I mean, I see you just like zipping back and forth. You are really hands-on with everything. Mm-hmm. What is it like to produce this really big festival every single year? It is, uh, it's, it's stressful. Uh, it definitely is. I, uh, but I, again, I, I'm lucky to uh, work for an organization where we have a lot of amazing professionals that really know what they're doing. And so my goal is to really just set everything up, uh, set, get all the details in place from all of the acts. Uh, you know, my, my first goal, I start seven months before is I want to curate a festival that I know is going to be good for our audiences. So that's number one. Let me curate that. Let me put that together, right? And then now I need to get all the information from all of you so that I can line up all of the other wheels, get all those in place. And then after that, like that's that's a lot, you know, that's four or five months of work. Uh, and then once all that's lined up, we have such an amazing team that they know what to do. Once they have all the technical details, all the marketing materials, right? All the, uh, 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 you know, all the, all, the mus- all the musical pieces in place, then they just go to work. And it's my... After that, as long as I've been clear uh, with them, I just have to do cleanup. 
Well, yeah. it seems like the festival also attracts the same theater going audience that you referenced uh, earlier. Mm-hmm. How do you gauge their reaction? How do you think this theater going audience reacts to seeing these these different acts and seeing something that's not your standard Neil Simon play or or Andrew Lloyd Webber musical? Yeah, I, I think they uh, they love it, and but they love it because of the quality of people that we bring. The fact that the people that we invite, and you know, and you've been a part of that ensemble, uh, and you, you know, many of our friends that are part of it. The fact that the improv that we bring matches the caliber that they're used to, and that that's important for me. Uh, it's like I need that I need acts that I know are going to be able to do that. And I'll be honest, in the past we've had acts that have not, and you feel it right away. You feel it because uh, that's what this audience wants. And so uh, I know that if I bring that caliber, they're going to be satisfied and they have been. And they it, it widens their imagination of what improv is, which circles back to my purpose, is that it gives me then permission throughout the year to continue to expand. Once the festival widens their perspective on what improv can be, then it gives me permission for 12 months to keep playing in that. You know, now they know, thanks to MC Hammersmith, they know how improvised hip hop works. Thanks to some of the, the genre groups like uh, Parallelogram of Phonograph, right? Uh, they know now that uh, how genre, a full improvised play might look like, right? And these are things that I have not done yet, but the, the, the high quality of the festival uh, teaches the audiences, gives me permission to now go into that throughout the year. Hmm. Awesome. Well, you know, you, of course, been so involved in producing this festival and doing shows and directing shows and teaching classes. And then the pandemic hit. Yeah, that was definitely a a major game changer. I'm curious to to know how did you kind of go through that time where we couldn't be in theaters anymore? We couldn't be in person anymore. How did that affect you? Yeah, we um. Like almost immediately, we went into, and I think a lot of other groups did this as well. We went, uh, we weren't even doing Zoom shows, but we went right. We went into Zoom rehearsals. We kept meeting up every week at the same time that we normally would. And at first, we thought it would be rehearsals, but then what we found ourselves doing was just talking for two hours and just catching up and just chatting, and it was very cathartic for all of us. Uh, and then eventually, we were like, okay, well, why don't we try to just do something, uh, right? And then we started the live stream shows and, you know, I think like many of us, like we would get, like some shows we would get oh yeah, a few dozen people, then others you'd get a handful of people. But I started to realize like this is more, and I didn't mind it. Uh, it was more for us than for anyone else. It was just fun to keep that routine going of getting ready for a show, doing a show, and then, uh, and then going on. Uh, and then uh, we did find an opening uh, where we started to uh, find a way to start to do live shows again, uh, you know, and uh, uh, very limited audiences, fully masked, the whole thing, lots of testing, a lot of temperature taking, etc. cetera. Uh, and that kind of gave us a, an idea of what we um, how to move forward with this. And, you know, I, I when I share this, what I'm about to share with you, I, I, it shocks a lot of people. But, you know, I look at my watch right now and it's, uh, what is it, uh, September 25th. We are in our last five days of COVID restrictions at Florida Studio Theater. Uh, really? Still, oh, yeah. We're still operating under certain restrictions, but they end at the end of this month. Uh, and I do think that a lot of people think that because of 
some of the steps we took on early on that we were being very, maybe some people would think that we were being careless in, in how we were operating uh, during the, during the, the pandemic. Uh, the fact of the matter is that we were being like extremely, extremely careful. Uh, and, you know, I'm thankful that we never had any outbreaks or anything like that, but we were able to, to put on shows uh, to very limited small audiences, but we were able to do it. Uh, and yeah, we're down to our last five days of restrictions. And then in October, you know, hopefully, hopefully that'll be the end of that chapter. But we, you know, we did learn a lot about how to be careful health-wise. And now that is not going away. Now we know what to do uh, when anything like this ever comes again, even if it's not as serious. Yeah, I'm sure we all learned a lot during that time. I am glad to hear that you kept those protocols going. Yeah. Yeah, we, uh, and especially when you're dealing with an older audience. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, we, you need to be very, very, very careful. We were very, uh, whenever we suspected anything, uh, we were immediately on it and uh, very protective of the most important people there, which are our patrons, our audience members. Here's something that I really want to ask you, Will, because you are a performer, you're a director, you're a teacher, you're a producer, but most important of all, you're a husband and a father. <laughs> and so I'm curious, how do you manage to balance out all of that work with the improv and the most important thing, which is time with your family? Uh, th- I, I appreciate you asking that. Uh, you know, I, um, being a father was always important to me as a, you know, it, it, you know, being an improviser, being a professional, working professional, all of that is very important for me as well. But I always wanted to be a, a dad and my, uh, my wife and I, from the very beginning, we always knew that when we had children, we wanted to live our lives with our children, not around them. And so what that meant for us was we're going to keep working. We're going to keep doing what we can, but we want to make sure that we also bring them up for, with our kids understanding that what we do, right? But uh, us never... Uh, us never giving them less of a, of an ex- a life experience because of our work and us never fully losing our careers, right? Because suddenly we have to raise a family, which meant that my wife and I really take care of each other. Like if she has a big thing coming up, then I will take the, 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 the dad, you know, the, the family load, all right? And vice versa. If I have a festival that's coming up or whatever, she, she takes a lot of it on. Uh, so part of it is like we want to live our lives with our kids and they, they understand what it is that we uh, that we do, right? Uh, but also, I've had to set boundaries, right? As much as I, I do a million different things, right? I also, there's certain blocks of time in the day where I'm like, okay, this is where I need to be available for homework. This is where, you know, I need, I want to have dinner with my family, right? Uh, Etc. And uh, sometimes that, sometimes that does mean I have to schedule my family life as vigorously as I schedule my work life. Uh, right. But, if, you know, if that's what I have to do on some occasions, I do it. Uh, but, it, you know, we uh, making making time for them is is vital. Hmm. I love that. I love that. I think that's important to hear because I, there are a lot of other people in your position. And sometimes you see them kind of go the opposite way. You know, they yeah. kind of focus more on this is my dream and this is what I want to do. And the family kind of gets left behind. Yeah. And so I appreciate that you always put family first, no matter, no matter what. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 and it helps for me, like, because my kids understand what it is that I do and, uh, you know, then they are also, they're understanding of me. Right. And they, uh, you know, they understand 
uh, you know, like th earlier today when I had to, I had to teach class, you know, I, they knew that I had to do that. And then, but I told them I, right afterwards, we'll, you know, we'll go do uh, the next thing. And, and they were, they were very understanding of it. And, and I think that's something that I look back at my childhood and I don't think I ever had a clear picture of what my parents did. I knew, I kind of knew, right. Uh, but I never had a full, full picture. So having that clarity and communication with my kids uh, is really important because it, it, it increases that empathy and understanding among, among all of us. Hmm. Is there any chance you're going to put your kids into improv classes? I tried. Uh, <laughs> I tried. I mean, at, at first it was convenience. Like it was just like, uh, you know, I'm working and, you know, they're in the other room in a, in a class. Uh, one of them, probably the most successful of the family, did two professional plays uh, and then called it quits. She was like, ah, I'm done. No more for me. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, and the younger one has been taking improv classes. Uh, she can't, oh, I forget. Oh, it's not running this session. So maybe next session she'll get back into improv classes. But yeah, she's, uh, the younger one is definitely the joker. She definitely has a stronger sense of humor. And so uh, uh, I'm sure she'll continue it. <laughs> but I'm not going to make them do it. I'm not going to force any of them to do it. If they want sure. to. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Will, I got one final question for you, and this has been an absolute blast. And I've got one final question for you, my friend. Yeah. What's the one piece of advice that has served you well that you want everyone else to hear? The one piece of advice, uh, be, uh, be patient, uh, be, uh, be patient, uh, really, uh, with yourself, with others, uh, with your career. Uh, and I say that because I was in, in the improv business part-time or for no payment for 17 years. Uh, it was, I moved to Florida nine years ago. And before that I was still doing a day job and then improv at night. And my dream was always to be a full-time, uh, to be a full-time artistic director. Even when I was in Boston, I was artistic director of Improv Boston, but I was not full-time. I was still working during the day. Uh, and after 17 years, I finally got that opportunity, uh, that opportunity to work uh, full-time uh, here at Florida Studio Theater. And I feel like uh, I always tell, tell folks, I'm like, give yourself at least 17 years uh, before <laughs> <laughs> uh, to, to see if your career uh, finally uh finally hits. Uh, but yeah, being patient, uh, being patient, uh, with your, with your career. So with yourself being uh, patient with others, uh, one thing I've learned in all this time in directing and teaching and managing so many people is that we're all on our own voyage, right. And we're all going on this voyage at different speeds. Uh, and so, uh, sometimes you have to be patient while others are, are, you know, they have to put the sail down for a little bit to just cruise and, and, and that's okay. Mm. So yeah, being patient with one another. Mm, great piece of advice. Will, you know, I love you very much and I always get such a joy just seeing you and I see your hustle and I see everything you do. I wish you so much continued success with Florida Studio Theater and the Sarasota Improv Festival and wow. most especially with your family. Will, thank you so much for your time today. This is very special. I'm glad it finally worked out. Thank you so much. Thank you, my friend. What a great conversation. And what a great piece of advice. Be patient. Be patient with one another and be patient with yourself. I can certainly relate to this piece of advice in so many ways. 
and I'm sure you all probably can too. My thanks to Will Luera for taking the time to talk to me. I invite you all to learn more about him and his great works at his website, willluera.com. That's will-luera.com. And learn all about Florida Studio Theater at their website, floridastudiotheater.org. Be sure to also check out my website, togetherbymyself.com, to learn about my solo improv show and a little more about me. And don't forget to show some love for the podcast by leaving a review and some stars. I'd really appreciate that. I appreciate all of you, my friends. Take care, enjoy your day, and catch you next time here on Improv and Magic. We'll be right back.